Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, and Senior Editor at Food & Wine. My guest today is somebody whose work is fundamental to me and to anybody else who gives a good damn about restaurants, because it is a beautiful match of journalism, excellent writing, and... Um, humanity, I'd say, as well. He also exhibits this on his podcast, Out to Lunch with Jay Rayner. He is the longtime critic of The Observer in London, and most relevant to uh, this conversation right now, he has just released a book that he was in town, New York City, doing a one-man show related to last night. It is Jay Rayner's Last Supper. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. It was an absolute joy to see you on stage last night. Uh, I know that you you had, you had mentioned in your book that you intended to be an actor when you were young. Well, I, I had an ambition to be yeah. an actor because my father had been an mm-hmm. actor. Um, not very successful one, as he would say, but he, yeah. he'd, he'd worked in some good places. And my parents were obsessed by theatre. And by the age of 10, mm-hmm. I had been backstage at every West End theatre because they knew people mm-hmm. in shows. And I, I, I loved all of that. And, and the realisation was that an ability to remember lines and show off was not the same as being an actor. But at the same time last night, I was watching you up there and thinking, he can remember his lines, not many critics could. could Well, in a way, it has come slightly full circle. So, you know, at some point we should probably deal with the idea of a restaurant critic who in the US is meant to be anonymous. Yes. And there I am selling tickets for the Come and See Me show, which is a different thing. Right, and you're... uh... Let us uh, not neglect this, holding it up to the camera for oh, people who cannot see it. Here's your face on the cover of your absolutely brilliant new book. Yeah. Well, I, I it, it happened a few years ago that I started doing these one-man shows. Mm-hmm. It was actually an attempt to escape literary festival discussion panels. Oh, dear God, because you you also write fiction. You also Yeah, I, I do have a bunch of things. So this is, my, I think, my 11th book. But I'd written a book called Greedy Man in a Hungry World, which mm-hmm. is about uh, genuine definitions of sustainability in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And while being massively entertaining, of course, it's also quite <laughs> pointy-headed. And I knew that it was fodder for discussion panels at mm-hmm. literary festivals where they get someone who's going to disagree with you with, um, and, you know, you sit between two palms and two rubber plants. And I hate them. They bore yeah. me. I think they're reductive. I don't think they're clever. And so my, my solution was to come up with a one-man show using PowerPoint as a kind of second performer on stage. What you saw last night is the mm-hmm. fourth of those shows because it built and built and built. And it's far more a piece of theatre than anything I've ever done. And it built around five sort of five anecdotes from my life. Well, the staging of it, too, was so interesting because you move yourself to the side or all of a sudden you're sitting in a banquette that you are... Let, let's actually talk about what happens in the show for people who have not read the book yet. Yeah. This is a glorious book that has so many layers to it because I really like it. I, I, I like so many things about it because I do care about food, but it also really, really touches on morality and mortality. Oh, yeah. In a, in a really profound way that I, I want to dive into. But there, there is a driving pursuit in this book, which if you could explain to people who are not familiar with it. Yet. All right. So... so- the, the pursuit, or I would even go so far as conceit, is that whenever I've done those mm-hmm. live shows, I always have a question and answer session. And the one question I would get more <laughs> often than anybody, any, any, any other was, imagine you're on death row, what would your last meal be? And I've always replied that I think I would have lost my appetite. Yes. And I, I got to thinking about the, the idea of last meals. It's a parlor game that we all play. You yes. know, what would you have? When you think of all the, the genuine candidates, 
the suicidal, the terminally ill. Mm -hmm. Not a happy bunch. And also not actually suited to eating a last meal. But the idea Mm -hmm. of what would you have if nobody was looking, it summed up your life. I thought it was a a brilliant one and a a great way to delve into the uh, relationship between food, memory and emotion. Because if there aren't a consequence, if you're not going to be alive for very long the next day to deal with the consequences of it, shame goes out the window, guilt goes out the window. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, imagine myself in a bathtub full of, I don't know, smearable substances. Yeah, sure. (laughs) You can can go anywhere with it. Yeah, Uh, gluttony. uh, (laughs) Exactly. I mean, one of the questions I had last night that I showed now mm-hmm. I no longer get the question what would you have for your last right. supper I've dealt with that <laughs> but you know somebody said that there was no mention of cheese oh yeah which was a good question because when I started working on the book I I drew up a list of what I thought would be chapter headings mm-hmm. and two of them got struck out one was cheese and one was chocolate mm-hmm. fine fine foodstuffs in their own Absolutely. way but I didn't really have a deep emotional relationship a memory to attach to them yes and narratively, as a writer, I felt it necessary that those things that I pick on and identify had to come from somewhere within my story. It's as simple as that. Um, I, I'm, I'm very interested in narrative as a writer. I always say I'm a writer first. Yeah, well, you're a journalist first, I feel like, a journalist and a writer, because you really do the forensic work <laughs> on all of the, the, the things that you're delving into. Because Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here, and there is a notebook in my back pocket. There mm-hmm. is always a notebook in my back pocket, mm-hmm. because I used to cover murders. I yes. used to do politics, social policy, you name it. And I still, to this day, when, uh, you know, writing restaurant reviews, mm-hmm. I'm asking myself the question, what's the story here? Because yes. a table, a chair plate of food and a waiter Mm -hmm. is not going to propel 1,100 words. You need something more than that. And in the same way with this book, I'm I'm looking for the story behind the dishes that I chose. I can't just say, I like spare ribs. I do like spare ribs. (laughs) Spare ribs are great. (laughs) Spare ribs are a great thing. But I I, I need to, you know, understand, look back on myself. I mean, obviously, it's enormously self-absorbed, Kat. Staggeringly (laughs) so. But that... There's a lot to it though, because you you have the ability and the and the uh, the funding and the privilege to be able to go out and explore this in a way that civilians can. Oh, I am lousy with privilege. Oh dear God! <laughs> I mean, we both are in a tremendous kind of way, and people yeah. can live in this vicarious way. And uh, we will get into the the difference between UK and uh, US food criticism and re- restaurant criticism, but uh, there is a service aspect to it um, in a way because you were doing these these things to make sure that people have the experience uh, that they, they should and not waste their money at places where it, it would it would be an emotional waste. You had touched uh, last night on, on some uh, sort of popular reviews and things, but I, th- I thought when you said Peter Luger, I thought you were going to say per se. Um, that Pete Wells- Well, that's a, ve- a very interesting one. Yeah. I mean, I think um, in terms of Pete Wells of the New York yeah. Times, the per se review mm-hmm. where he knocked it down from four stars yeah. to two was a very interesting moment mm-hmm. for you and I. Extremely. For you and I, for those of us in the food world, you go, okay, Pete, that's 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 really interesting. I suspect the Peter Luger one mm-hmm. was rather more instructive for the readers. True. Well, the the per se one hit me on an emotional level in a way because that was the most I'd ever spent <laughs> on a meal, and I was depressed for a couple of weeks after because it didn't match up to the sort of hagiography hey, that people had written for years and years and years. One of the the issues with dinner, yeah, with with going to eat in restaurants yeah. is. 
the larger the bill becomes, mm-hmm. the harder it is as a customer mm-hmm. to admit to yourself that it wasn't all that. Yes. Because you are undermining yourself and your own choices. Mm-hmm. You end up looking back on it going, I feel like a fool. I feel like an idiot. I, I feel like I've been duped. The, the benefit of the, the professional critic mm-hmm. is that we, you know, are perhaps more able to step back and say objectively, no, this really isn't worth the, what is per se these days, 500 bucks a head? It ended up costing me, I think, nearly $1,000. Did it? Or something, like with the wine. Just think of all the, the other things you could have done with $1,000. And I did <laughs> think of that. And I had been not too long before that to Alinea, where I had spent $7 less and had a meal that I still think about on a regular basis because it hit me on an emotional level. I wasn't made to feel... Like I wasn't spending enough money to be there because I... You, you were shut down the wine list. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, the, the, the idea of restaurants and food, yeah. sometimes I find that people who don't do the job I do yeah. think it's just about the food on the plate. Whereas yes. <laughs> um, restaurants at a particular level are about anticipation and memory. Mm-hmm. Heston Blumenthal of the Fat Duck in the UK yeah. is very, very good on the idea of anticipation. He says that with a with a, a major restaurant experience, the experience begins the moment you book it. Oh, and, yes. And then you are spooling forward. And he's actually at various times built certain elements into that process. So you're sent notes and you're, you're, they ask you various things. And then you're left with the memories. And the, the, the best restaurants stop the world and give you your best version of yourself at that table. And your companions. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. all of that. But yes, you're absolutely right. The world melts. Yeah. It's a, good restaurants are meant to shut the door on the world. Yes. And, and I'm a strong believer in that. I fully uh, subscribe to this. And I can see we're, we're at a strange point in the culture in, in the U.S. and in the U.K. where many... Many things are afoot right now that it can be seen as indulgent to be going to restaurants, to be uh, writing about food, about restaurants and things. And you get harped at by a lot of people like, what do you do? The world is burning. Why are you doing this? And like, people need joy still. Right. Well, there are, two, yeah, there are two things. One, yeah. it is possible to hold two thoughts in your head yes, at the same it time. Is. <laughs> it is possible to say, um, you know, the way they cut the ham on Iberico was a bit rough and not worth the money and also be concerned mm-hmm. about the war in Syria. You can hold those two <laughs> thoughts in your head yes. at the same time. And that doesn't make you a bad person. Um, I think one of the problems people have with food experiences is because we need to eat to live, Mm -hmm. the idea of eating for pleasure becomes stigmatized. Mm -hmm. But really, you need to put it in the same category as a whole bunch of other experiences. And the example I give in the UK is that you don't get the same resentment from people who decide to spend, say, £200 on the experience of going to see a Premier Football League match Mm -hmm. because in some way football is considered authentic, an authentic experience. Um, I I, I hesitate to get into class, but it's considered an authentic working class experience, even at £200 a a ticket. Mm -hmm. Whereas restaurant experiences are, by their very nature, bourgeois, to use the old term, and therefore entirely uh, deserving of our contempt. And my job possibly yours, uh, I I won't speak for you, is to keep arguing that actually the most important things in life are are normality and having the right to spend your money as you see 
fit. Now mm. there are stupid restaurant experiences. Oh, thoroughly. which I've deserve to be yeah, of those. which deserve to be called out. Yeah. Um, but it's not necessarily down to cost. You know, I've spent a lot of money on, on meals that were the stuff of memories. And mm. that's how I like to build my memories. Yeah. And there are other ones that drove me insane and resulted in me writing rude words about them <laughs> for the public to read. But in, in incredibly uh, delicious words. I do like a negative review. But the thing is, Pete didn't set out to uh, – he was texting me a lot during the Per Se review because he knew – my feelings on on there that I had been somewhat depressed for a couple of weeks after that experience because I had gone in there and I think they discounted our table because we were four women. We did not go for the, we, the it started, you were talking about class anxiety because even though I do what I do for a living, mm. I walk into restaurants sometimes and think, ah, oh, they're going to know that I am riffraff, that I don't belong here, that I grew up in right. Kentucky and went to a state school, that they're going to know that um, somehow. So I, I did bring in my own class anxiety there. But I also noted that what they made a really awkward question about how much we wanted to spend on wine, and they could have done that infinitely more gracefully. And once we sort of gave them a per-person price of how much we wanted to spend on wine, it was handled so not gracefully, we sort of realized, like, okay, we're getting perfunctory treatment there. How dismal. It was. <laughs> and and so Pete knew that. So he, was, he would text me after he went, and, and he ended up sending me a picture of himself outside Senor Frog's. That he also wrote a notable yes. thing about it, and eventually we went to Senor Frogs, and but he wrote a delightful review of Senor Frogs, which, were, yeah. which was not kind of condemnatory. It was hilarious. It, it was the happy. I've known him for twenty one years. It's the happiest <laughs> I've ever seen him. I brought along the movie actor um, Jason Biggs to who, uh, and he is delightful. He is obsessed with food, and we ended up having balloon hats and dancing in a conga line. And I, was, I believe I recall the reference yes. in the review. And so we ended up actually using Senor Frogs as a way that we refer to people would they join the conga line and deciding like who you want to eat with and it to me that was more Here's a question Kat. yeah would thomas keller join the conga line we actually discussed that uh, pete and i did and uh he may be at this point would but he would do it reluctantly and stiffly yes i think i think that's probably probably the case yeah you would maybe have to get a few shots into him or something i have interviewed him and i found yeah. him i found him very agreeable he, he was a good talker <laughs> yeah. very polished yeah very smart um i ate it per se ooh, a long time ago mm -hmm. um and it was it, uh, well i say it was great i can't remember a single thing i had that's yeah that, <laughs> that's the thing i remember oysters and pearls mm. um, but i do know that i've had a million great mm. sandwiches from bouchon bakery and oh. and bouchon in las vegas where it fascinates me that they had to change the service model because they originally did the sort of very formal service and the uh the clientele who come from all over everybody ends up in vegas mm. at some point me a lot <laughs> some people less and i haven't been for a while and i'm missing it oh i went in december and it's it's holding up it's glorious but they realized that people thought that the servers were being standoffish by not talking to them. And they had to completely change the service model to say, like, hey, where are you folks from? How are you doing? To mm. put them at ease because it is a, you know, fine dining experience. Oh, I took a British friend of mine there and he had the best black pudding of his life there. And he was absolutely gobsmacked by the fact that we're in a sort of fancy restaurant in Las Vegas and they have absolutely nailed black pudding. Black pudding. Well, that is impressive. Yeah. And I and he was saying there has to be a British person back there in the kitchen somewhere. Well, probably is. Yeah. I mean, you know. I mean, really, truly. Yeah. Uh, but as a as a restaurant restaurant critic, I'm fascinated by this. If you could break down what you do, people mistake all the time. They think they misunderstand my profession. I rarely write about food. Uh, 
I, I mean, I do sometimes. It's funny mm. enough, I was just proofing um, a review from Dublin. Mm-hmm. I sometimes review outside the yeah. UK. And it's very foodie. Um, because it's a great city. Uh, th- this particular restaurant, what they're doing it, is quite intense yeah. and deserving of the attention. My job is not to sell uh, restaurants, it's yeah. to sell newspapers yes. or the digital equivalent thereof. Yeah. Now, sometimes people get very, very cross with me when I, when I say it like that. That does not mean that I should just be producing clickbait, no. but it does mean I am serving the readers, not the restaurants, mm-hmm. and that I need to describe to them how much pleasure your money will buy you. Yes. Um, that's the absolute point of, of the column. I need to do it in as entertaining a way as possible. That's no different to any other kind of writing. I, I always say, I teach a class occasionally, I always say, one of the first things I say is, nobody has to read a single thing you write, not even your mother. True. Um, and your job is to make them read, to read from the end of the first sentence, to the end of the first paragraph, to the end of the first page. I'm aware that in the magazine that I'm published in, in The Observer, on Sundays in the UK, that the gardening column is on the next page. And I do not want you turning to the gardening column (laughs) until you have read every word of me. But there is no, there's no way that I can sit there going, please read me, please read. I just have to make you want to. Yes, you have to earn it every time. As long Mm. as, and you've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah, 20, 20 years. I know, I barely look old enough. Isn't that the case? You were, you were a fetus when you started. Yeah, absolutely. Here's where our our Craig Claiborne comes into the mix. I want to read you a bit here. Put on the glasses. My eyesight has just gone to shit recently. Made it a while. Welcome, friend. Yes. (laughs) I made it, I I made it to my mid forties without it. So, um, but I, I'm interested in this. Uh, So toward the end of his career, he said, and to tell the truth, I was bored with restaurant criticism. At times, I didn't give a damn if all the restaurants in Manhattan were shoved into the East River and perished. Had they all served nightingale tongues on toast and heavenly manna and mead, there is just so much that the tongue can savor, so much that the human body and spirit can accept, and then it resists. Toward the end of my days as restaurant critic, I found myself increasingly indulging in drink. The better to endure, another evening of dining out, I had become a desperate man with a frustrating job to perform. 20 years in, do you feel any of that? No, and there is a good reason. Yes. I think, and it's very, very specific to the differences between UK and US. Um, The poor old New York Times critic (laughs) has to go to each restaurant three to five times. It's brutal. And that is brutal. That really is. Your body is not your own, neither are your evenings. You're out every Mm -hmm. night, lunchtime, whatever you are. And you're returning to places you've already had a bad time and you have to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the UK, uh, and people got quite cross about this because I wrote about this for the mm-hmm. Guardian US website. We go once. Yes. Generally, I might pop back if it's that kind of place where you can pop back. But if it's a, a full-on restaurant, I go once. Yeah. And my argument is uh, the prices that restaurants cost in the UK... How many times do you need to go mm-hmm. to really decide whether it's good or bad? You know. You absolutely know. Um, there is another point as well, which is most American cities are one broadsheet newspaper cities. Yes. So you have the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Chicago Tribune, the Post. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means you have one big name critic. I mean, obviously there are others in New York, yeah. but one big name critic. And that presents economies of scale. Um, and it presents a service journalism role. Mm-hmm. In the UK, there are 
I think it's, I get a bit confused. Let's say 10 national newspapers, and at least seven of them have restaurant critics. And we all cover the same waterfront, which means that instead of getting one person's view of a restaurant based on three visits, you are possibly going to get five different people's views of a restaurant based on one visit each. And we've just had that. You were at Davies and Brooks? Is that Davies and Brooks is uh, a new restaurant from Daniel Hum of 11 Madison. Mm-hmm. Um, it's opened inside Claridge's, which is one of our fanciest hotels my in the town. F- one of my favorite bars is there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he's opened this 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 very serious restaurant where the... Very the, serious. Well, it's yeah. quite serious. Do they you, gave us the worst table. It was fantastic. Do you get tired of serious restaurants? Yes, absolutely. I... Yeah. I um, so... We divide the restaurants we're going to review, Mm -hmm. The Guardian and The Observer, Mm -hmm. through an intermediary. Um, There's one editor, and I say, can I take this one? And Mm -hmm. Grace Dent, who reviews for The Guardian, says, can I take that? And I did take Davis and Brooke, but mostly because I felt it was time that I went back and did one of those sorts of restaurants. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some people, I tend to call them napkin sniffers, um, (laughs) who, who revel absolutely revel in that whole bow and curtsy of the grand restaurant experience yeah. and can we present to you you know at davison brook they bring one of their dishes in, a, in an old wooden box oh and basically the food has been interred in a coffin before it arrives i mean it's a nice enough dish it's a, it's yeah. it's congee with with ginger and uh, enoki mushrooms and it's 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 nice enough but i i think one of the things that reviewing on a regular basis helps with is I'm really sorry, but I don't care how nice a box it is. That's not going to change my view of the food inside it. Yes. So uh, I went. Yeah. I did eat a couple of very, very fine dishes. There were a couple of dishes that uh, coming out of that kitchen were yeah. some of the best I'd eaten in a very long time. But even so, I would not feel the need to go back. There's a preciousness, I think, that I get exhausted by at some of these restaurants and i feel in the u.s there's a there's a move away from some of absolutely that. i mean i've, I've just a, a um little. i've only been in new york uh for about three or four nights yeah um i've eaten out quite a lot and it's all been in a kind of noisy i, I would call it mid-market mm-hmm. area and the food has been terrific yes i, I really really i've eaten I've, I've eaten three or four bang on meals um already yeah and I've got a couple more to go <laughs> uh, and it's been you know I've, I've been quite struck one of the issues I had I, I have I have reviewed somewhere here was I'm excited and I sort of wonder if I know where that is. no you haven't got a clip um, <laughs> you said Brooklyn uh, oh did I yes yeah, you I said did. Brooklyn and you also on, uh, on Twitter on. responded to a friend of mine and you said it was across the street from a restaurant in my neighborhood oh so God. so I I think I know oh, where do you know my ex-editor then Wait, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah Knight. Yes, we. Yes, I have known her for many, many years. Oh right, I think then you probably have worked out exactly where I went. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the issue, journalism, man, it's journalism. <laughs> oh, join the dots. Um, it was a case of looking at the list that came my way from various friends and contacts, yes. and saying, "Can I get something like this in London?" And the honest answer was, "Yes, we're we're very mm-hmm. similar cities. Yes, in, in many ways." Um, but the one thing I found I couldn't get was the one place I went to. There you go. 
Okay, I'm very much looking forward to this, and I think I have it nailed. No, you have it nailed. You clearly do. Because <laughs> that is also the neighborhood that I have lived in since 1997 oh, right. or eight. Okay. So. okay. Well, you've seen a few changes. Oh, tremendous changes, and it's actually been a it's been a joy to see the evolution. And I've seen the crossover too, because there was there's a restaurant in the neighborhood called Stone Park that, right. that I love so deeply and fundamentally, and they had for a long time a marrow bone on there that was inspired by Saint John, and I am a such a St. John obsessive that after uh, they came and did a pop-up at Barbudo uh, in 2010, I got a marrow spoon tattooed on my Osobuco bone. It's. Uh, I am also a former metalsmith, so yeah, it makes, okay. makes sense. But they were just. In Sorry, when you say you got a tattoo on your Osabuka, but is that a euphemism that I've misunderstood? Uh, no, it's it's up my uh, sort of uh, shin bone. Oh, I see. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair yeah, enough. Okay. so it's nothing dirty. I swear, there's no double entendre there. But they also. Uh, but the, to see the crossover of like, oh yes, clearly we've been to St. John's, and then they're suddenly doing it in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, and then we had the pleasure of uh, Fergus and Trevor were just here in Brooklyn over the weekend doing a pop-up at the Hoxton here for the books. So I got to interview them um, over the weekend and... uh, uh, Oh yeah, it was was great. (laughs) It was middle of the afternoon so there were no cocktails first. Mm. Um, But then they served the pies at And it was such a joy watching a lot of people who had never had their pies before. And they're changing pies in each four cities. And they did a pigeon, bacon, and uh, trotter here. And just watching my friends, some of whom had been to St. John and some of whom had not. I'm kind of intrigued. How how did they do that? Did they bring stuff over? They did bring some things over. And uh, I think stealthily (laughs) did some things. But they've also been working with all the chefs at the various Hoxtons there. They They did chips. I don't know if it would measure up to your top chip of all time, as, as you said, but they were very wonderful. Do we need to say by chips you mean fries? Do, will your audience understand? <laughs> Hopefully anybody listening to this podcast will know what right. that is. But to see that, that back and forth exchange, but to see the joy that people had who had not gotten to sit down mm. at St. John. They serve the marrow bones. They serve that that salad with anchovies that he calls the salad that, that saved my life. It's a beautiful thing. But to see that translation was such a lovely thing. But you were saying there was there were similarities between the two cities with some of these things. And I, I, I think, yeah. I mean, so one of the, the main similarities between London and New York mm-hmm. is that as rents and oh, rates God. and wages have shot up yeah. in, the, in the center, mm-hmm. both cities have donutted. Which is to say, you know, if you if you come to town, yeah, that obviously there are there are some great restaurants in Manhattan, mm-hmm. but really you should be heading to Park mm-hmm. Slope and Williamsburg and whatever. You should be heading out to what were previously considered the you know the residential neighbourhoods, and in London it's the same. Yeah. So there are some great restaurants in the centre, but the really interesting stuff you're likely to find it in Peckham or Hackney or mm-hmm. Dalston or Haggerston or Brixton, where I live, mm-hmm. um, outside of the centre, and with that comes a certain confidence. Younger cooks yes. feeling able to do their thing. We have one downside. Here's a really specific yeah, do tell. specific reference. So younger cooks are no longer feeling they have to do 10 years mm-hmm. uh, in a grand restaurant before going off on their own. Um, and so they're opening quicker and maybe opening with a short menu rather than a big mm-hmm. expanse. And that's all brilliant. But the one problem I'm noticing is it means that many of them haven't done long enough on pastry. 
And yes. so their dessert menus tend to be creamy things in a bowl. They you, write them beautifully. You can always see a chef dessert where they have not. <laughs> They've not done time on pastry. So you get it will be a, a thing panna cotta with a thing gel with a thing whatever. There's so and, many and, creme brulees. Uh, there's creme brulees. There's <laughs> chocolate mousses. And they and they and they write them beautifully. Mm-hmm. But they you look at them and go, nah, it's a creamy thing in a bowl. Uh, uh, Fergus and Trevor did the uh, Il Flottante when they were. Well, that's a proper. A be- that's a, that's a, a proper piece of work. Thing. It was you know, a really truly lovely. Soft meringue and, and custard is marvellous. Yeah, it was just about broke my teeth with the sweetness, but it was oh, yeah. marvellous. Those madeleines, how were glorious. But the other thing that I'm seeing with some of these young chefs is that they, and this is a problem that is uh, has come to the forefront in the US and um, in the UK, where some of these chefs are seeing the abuse that the previous generation was, was having in the kitchen. There are low wages and you're being physically and mentally abused, and a lot of them are, are turning their backs on it and saying, I know you went through it and you're trying to perpetrate this abuse but I don't have to deal with this. Well you've written extensively about this Um, I came up behind you know was playing catch up and I've written a couple of big pieces. I thoroughly appreciate that you have. For for Observer Food Monthly and we've started sort of talking seriously about mental health issues in the hospitality business. Thank you for doing that. Well it it has to be done. I mean there is a disconnect what goes on behind the kitchen door should not um, be abusive or detrimental to the mental health of the people you're paying mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. And we know that too much kitchen work is low pay. Mm-hmm. The hours can be appalling. And even though we also know that kitchens can be a sanctuary for a group of people Absolutely. who perhaps haven't fitted in elsewhere. And it's a beautiful, that is the beautiful pirate ship yeah, part of it. Yeah, but it is not an excuse mm-hmm. for terrible abusive behavior. I get a bit reflective in the book in the last in, in, in the last supper book about this because yes. um I think the whole me too issue abuts this mm-hmm. particularly in the restaurant business. You know, I went out for a night with Mario Batali mm-hmm. and he behaved appallingly and yes. I thought I would just write it very tidily and tightly and cleanly and and he'd hang himself with his own words, but in fact I think I may be just built into the myth of who he was. I think we're all struggling with that about how we covered some of these people. I, I covered him over the years. I covered John Besh. I covered various of these people who've been called out f- for this. And it's definitely factored into who and how and what I, I write about. And I, you know, and I've of course had to think of like, who have I been complicit in, in writing about? What did I just laugh off because I, I thought I, I had to? I, I was thinking about particular you know, strange nights that I had a, the spotted pig, and I, there was a very strange night in that particular room where um, the room at the top with a code on the number he, code on the door. Yeah, and uh, Marco Pure White bit me. You know, and I was thinking like, and I laughed it off because I was sort of well, like, because it's Marco and that's yeah, hilarious. And I'm thinking like, it's no, and he was actually weirdly not even the only chef who bit me. The other one <laughs> bit me on the arm, and I had a bruise for a week, and I had to just kind of, and then try to get me to go shag him in the bathroom. And I'm like, no, and but I had to kind, of, I, and I was thinking, where was I complicit then, in sort of laughing it off and things? So it's, I mean, it's very much at the front of what I do. I was hearing a story. I, I had uh, I spoke at a conference in Galway, um, Food on the Edge, yes, a spectacular yeah, yeah. group of people talking about a lot of things. And somebody got up on stage and told a story about a, a chef who was still working in, I think, in London. And he had a, a strange thing where he had all of the cooks line up and they would spit in the porter's face every day. And it was it was a God awful sort of thing, and, uh, and 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 the cooks now are having this reflective moment, saying, "Well, I did that. I fell in line behind it." Yeah. When you start to learn these things about these chefs, 
What is your take currently on if you cover them, if you don't, if you go to their restaurants? Oh, how you uh, I'm, yeah. I'm very clear. There are um, a number yeah. of chefs who I will not write about. Yeah. I won't review the restaurants. Yeah. There's a guy, and I'm very comfortable saying it, there's a, there's a chef in the UK called John Burton Race mm-hmm. who went all the way to two Michelin stars mm-hmm. and has had a rackety life. And he's about to publish his memoir, so mm-hmm. he'll probably be delighted that I'm talking about it. <laughs> um, yeah. I think he is an appalling human being. Um, I've had conversations with him where he has said things that I find repugnant and repulsive, and I will not go and review another one of his restaurants. Yeah. Um, and there are similar chefs that I know things about, and yeah. I will not go and review them. Yeah. Um, I would prefer to be able to go further. Yeah. Which is to say why I won't review them, and sometimes I do very explicitly, yeah. but I won't put you through the whole compliance issue of, of what those things are. I, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, I, I used to work at CNN. Right, okay, so <laughs> yeah. I, won't, I, won't, I, won't, I won't place you in that position. Yeah. We have been, it's one of the interesting questions, so Observe Food Monthly is our monthly food mag, Yeah. Um, and we've long had the conversation in, in London going, so in various bits of the US restaurant industry, people have been named and shamed and their yes. behavior has been called out. And we haven't been able to do that mm. in the UK for a very simple reason. It requires very brave people to come forward and yeah. go on the record. Mm-hmm. Um, and people did go on the record here in New York. They, uh, yes, for and the they haven't, pig especially. Um, in in the UK, and it drives me insane. It's, I mean, but I've I had a, a guest on the podcast uh, some weeks back, Trish Nelson, who was one of the people who worked at Spotted Pig and was one of the people in the lawsuit, and she put her career and her life in jeopardy, uh, standing up and and speaking out about this. And you know, they emerged in theory victorious mm. in in some ways, but then ended up getting absolutely screwed because they were entitled to future earnings uh, from the restaurant, and 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 Ken Friedman shut it down and. And, and so they're actually in currently trying to find investors to buy the place and and reclaim so it. So is, is the pig just a it's closed? Gone, it's just a yeah. shattered building. Yeah, it is. It is gone uh, right now. The, the restaurant part of it, and then I think there's maybe residential in the rest of the building. But it's it's a really complex mm. matter of ownership. Jay Z owns part of the building along with maybe twenty other people. It's a it's a huge rat's nest of, right. of legal things. But they want to take it and and reclaim it. And I fully champion their efforts to do so. And it's it's. <laughs> It is. Uh, it, I think if they can do that, even in another space, and they were calling it something like the vexed, the vexed sow, or something like that, they were trying to figure out another oh, right, name okay. for it, which I think is 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 very very funny. But this sort of reclaiming of power, and I think we're in a in a in a phase of. A lot of these people are trying comebacks. I and that are I know they? I will not be complicit in whatsoever. It's interesting. We we've had one particular guy in London who uh, had left the business yeah. that he was involved in, and then quietly tried to launch a restaurant. Yeah, we've and there was those. a kickback in which people, I mean I don't know maybe he's launched it and maybe it's doing mm-hmm. fine, but there was a strong feeling that he hadn't really apologised for his own behaviour. Yes, yeah, yeah. There there is definitely that, and some people have done the work, <laughs> and some people very clearly have not, and it's and I think. I think especially journalists are in a phase right now where we have to assess, like, is this thing genuine? Also, who left the business because you behaved in this particular way? Shouldn't they get their their chance now? And, yeah, sure. And I think that that's a really compelling thing. So, But it's, it's interesting as a food journalist at this particular point because we're in this phase of having to deal with people's pain and destruction and stuff and still having pleasure. And that is... Well, you see, again, I, I don't think it. that these 
the two things cannot exist. Yeah. There, there are still great restaurants and great people running restaurants and great cooks and people behaving brilliantly. I um, So I have a podcast called Out to Lunch. Yeah, it's a uh, joy. People subscribe. Yeah, we'll please the, do. We'll put, the, we'll put the link in there. I, so, and I love the conceit of the podcast. Well, the, so the conceit is I take a fabulous person out to lunch in a restaurant mm-hmm. um, and we order and then we talk. And my yeah. job is to have researched them to such a granular <laughs> detail that over the two hours, we, we it, it only runs for 45 to 50 minutes mm-hmm. I can get serious chat um, I did one here uh, with a British comedian called Ramesh Ranganathan who um, as we speak he's about to go and perform at the Soho Playhouse so he was in town a bit of a loose end um, <laughs> so he thought he'd come and talk to me and I did that at Crown Shy mm-hmm. um, down on uh, Pine Street yeah uh, is it James Kent? James Kent, who right. had been at EMP. And, yeah, and the thing that really struck me, and we talked about this briefly, James and I, was the massive um, open kitchen. Yeah. There are certain, you can have partially open kitchens, not this is a seriously open kitchen. It's part of the dining room. Oh, goodness. And I said one of the things I thought was really interesting is that it had started to alter behavior. Absolutely has. Because you cannot uh, mistreat your cooks. Um in front of your diners, mm-hmm. because your diners will watch. I mean, obviously, your, your, your cooks, your brigade also have to behave in certain <laughs> ways. They're going to have to watch their uh, their um, hygiene habits yeah. very, very closely. But he, he did say, he said, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. It, it moderates behavior, which is a very good thing. Although he did say that he knew of certain chefs who'd learned to stamp on their cooks' feet <gasps> in a way it was, that couldn't be seen in open kitchens. He oh. wasn't. Talking about himself, obviously. Um, I thought, Christ, there's always a way around it, isn't there? Yeah, people are going to be shitty if they are shitty people, yeah. and that's just going to happen. But uh, back to, to pleasure here. It's such a glorious th- through line, along with sort of mortality in, in the in the book, and I see you weighing the like morality of eating animals, which you it's a, it's a wonderful point of reflection in in the book because you you talked about because you you have very much written about sort of the ethics of food and consumption oh, and yeah, the impact yeah, yeah. on the world and all this kind of stuff. It's a lovely uh, moment in, in there too. But you're also people around you are, are cl- people close to you are dying while you're on this pursuit and. Pleasure is such an important part of being human, yeah. and it makes us feel most human. And and having these moments to get together with people and and share, because you're also talking about the people who you are eating with along the way, the people mm-hmm. who you end up eating with, and having these moments of there is not life unless there is something to really love in it. One of the challenges I think we all experience these days is living in the present tense. Yeah. We we're playing forward a lot yeah. of the time or thinking back, and. I'm the older I get, mm-hmm. um, the more I try wherever possible to think, you know, enjoy this. Yes. Enjoy where you are right now. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't enjoy now, what's the point? Yes. Uh, life is more than memories and anticipation. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing I love about restaurants, really. They are about the now. Um, and the now is very, very important. It's also, I have to say, I have this sideline as a jazz musician. I play jazz piano with the quartet. Um, and the brilliant thing about being a musician is you are constantly in the now. You oh, can't be anything you, other you than that. You can't afford anything you, other than you, that. Than the now. And that's one of the things I adore about it, working with other musicians. You're all right there in and the moment. And it's so collaborative. Too. Writing can be incredibly lonely. Going to restaurants can be a wonderful thing and sort of a thing of pressure. I see Pete having to deal with this because you have to make conversation with people unless you're eating. I love eating alone personally. but No, I'm, I'm big on eating alone as well. Yeah, really, but that really. that actually is another challenge that yeah. the, the, the big 
American critics face in having to go three to five times. Not only they have to do it, they have to find someone to come with them. Yes, it is. I'm sure that's incredibly challenging. Even You know, I've got some good friends. Yeah. But they're all sort of, oh, God, no, I can't. No, thank you, I've done it. I've been there. I don't want to go for dinner again with you. Because there are rules to it, too. Like when you eat with Pete, there are particular sort of things that you have to do. And it's. it's I only have have a couple of rules. I I might try and compare them with, uh, compare notes with Pete when I meet him. Um, So uh, one rule is obvious, uh, which is that I get to try everything on your plate. Yes. Yeah. Uh, But the main rule Mm -hmm. is that my companions have to understand. People listen to this and think you're a monster, but here it is. Yeah. I I'm, I want them there for their companionship. Yes. I am not at all interested in what they think about anything. Yes. Because <laughs> I am the one writing the column, not mm-hmm. them. Um, they can tell me what they think, and I'm quite a nice, polite, and open chap, so I'll listen. <laughs> but generally, I'm not really interested. But this applies to something else, which is, at some point, the waiters, the front of house staff, will ask you how everything is, how did you find that? And my dining companions are instructed to answer with one word, the most passive-aggressive word in the English language, fine. Oh, God. (laughs) Now, they may find that rude Mm -hmm. or bleak or uninformative, but it gives me room for manoeuvre. What I do not want is one of my companions saying, this is brilliant, this is the best thing I've ever tasted, when I'm the one who actually has to write the column. Right. So I'd prefer for the restaurant to be left a bit baffled than to get mixed messages and the wrong messages. I I like that. That would make me. Su- I'm such an effusive person, and I always want everybody to feel okay. And I'll, I was like, "Oh, this is wonderful." This is. Do you do that? I mean, clearly you've reviewed with Pete. Yes. And does he give any instructions on? Uh... Uh, no, it's mostly about sort of sharing the things. And I I am always deeply amused to call him by his pseudonym, whatever he's booked it under throughout the whole <laughs> kind of thing. But... Except the thing. Is, I mean, again, I'll talk to him when I when I finally meet him. Um, I do wonder in a city like New York in yeah. the age of the web. How anonymous he really is. He changes his look all the time, which Does is he? very fun. So when he uh, when he came on the podcast, it was not video. Uh, but the fun the funny thing is though, I'm I I have a, I'm pretty recognizable. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I usually wear my hair up in a bun too. So, yeah. but I go. But then the, the the damnable thing here is, then they can come and then they, they use it as an excuse because they know who he is. Generally, so he's not always made, but generally. But then they can come and sort of fawn at me, which I actually fucking hate. Um, but they because they can't do it to him, they do it to me, and that way they can sort of do all the things. And and I don't love extras and all that kind of stuff. Like, really, I just want to eat what I ordered mm. like for the, for the most part I also have a lot of dietary restrictions I'm dealing with an ulcer right now right, okay. which uh, like really sucks so I, I you know so it's actually like pretty hard for me and if all these things show up I can't actually eat them or else I'm going to feel like shit and I'm going to hate your restaurant yeah I mean you know people don't understand the yeah. trials yeah the trials cut the difficulties <laughs> the fight for just having dinner it's the hell the, I, the job that I do it's just the thing is like I know it sounds like huge like problems of privilege and stuff but I one of the my the, diamond pumps are pinching uh, but but it is one of those things where like I can't physically like eat this kind of stuff and then of course because I, I like I said I always want everybody to feel okay I'm, I don't want to hurt the chef's feelings I don't want to do this thing so sometimes I'll eat something that is like uncomfortable but then it's going to associate a negative memory with a restaurant and I and you know, and, and I, I don't want that for them. I was at a friend's restaurant before I came to your show last night, um, and we were just sitting there. We were just catching up, and, and she was saying, like, oh, can we get you anything? And I said, you know, I love your food, 
so so much but i can't eat anything here right now because i'll find any chance just two blocks around the corner it was pretty close it would be a tricin which i love so deeply but i knew that i would feel uh sick if i if i ate the things and i said you know i adore you and said but i can't uh do this because i don't want to have a negative memory associated with your restaurant so i just drank a very non-alcoholic ginger drink and so i could just enjoy (laughs) i could just enjoy being there you're going through this and you're actually worried about your own self uh because sleep is a well that's that's (laughs) interesting subject yeah Yeah. and and it um so i well the phrase is i suffer from sleep apnea actually i don't anymore because it's fully treated good i'm so so glad to hear that sleep apnea for anybody who doesn't know is when uh your airways collapse and you stop breathing Mm -hmm. and then your body shocks you awake yeah um and this can happen a lot yeah um uh, and i was I, I clearly ha- I was cl- clearly snoring a lot. My wife would yeah. know this, and we yeah. ended up sort of sleeping apart a lot of the mm-hmm. time, and it wasn't very happy. And so there is a narrative strand in there, particularly because mm-hmm. one of the symptoms of apnea is your body almost mimics death. Yes, you know your yes. your breathing stops, and then it starts again. Um, and so I started. Uh, the narrative is you know this this middle aged man going and getting himself. Uh, examined and treated mm-hmm. and staring mortality in the face. I'm yeah. 53. You're exactly my uh, husband's age. Right. And he has been through the snoring. Oh, is he? Right. And I am um, I carry a bit of extra weight. I always have. Um, and so the question was, had I done this to myself? As it happens, 40% of men over 40 suffer from mm-hmm. sleep apnea. Um, but it became a very intriguing thing yeah. to investigate. And then finally... You come to a point where you get a piece of kit that keeps your air- airways mm-hmm. open, and um, so I no longer suffer from sleep apnea I'm because so- it's treated. Yeah, but I was in quite a bad way. It's lack of sleep is is a really debilitating thing. I, I actually ended up going to my doctor a few years ago. I was worried there was something neurologically wrong with me because it runs in my family, and I was feeling dizzy. I was almost falling down, and she told me no, you actually have just a severe sleep deficit and you need six months of quality sleep. And I was like, right, okay. How did um, you get it? I, I, it's, It's been a lot of work. At that point, I sort of ignored it. And because I, I had a book to finish, I had a new job to start, I had all of these these, these things I in, in, in front of me. So finally, over the last year, half year, I've started doing meditation and uh, some medication for ADHD, which turns out was behind a lot of the anxiety stuff. Medical marijuana, which is, I have a legal, state legal card for it. Yeah, lucky me. (laughs) And I uh, I, I, I think it takes a bit of the joy out of it, doesn't it? I'd never done it before. (laughs) Had you not? No. Oh, no. I was was a stoner in my teens. Ah, see, Um, everybody always assumes I had, because I went to art school and everything, but no, I'm a control. I describe that in the book as well, don't I? Yeah. I'd stopped after too many magic mushrooms, age 19. <laughs> I'd gone through all my narcotics in my teens yeah. and then stopped. And, yeah, and then Thunderbird later. Oh, Thunderbird. <laughs> now, that was a moment. So, uh, um, so in <laughs> Blue Label Thunderbird, uh-huh. which is terrible stuff. Oh, God. it's uh, Rough as an old dirt track. I actually almost brought you a bottle today that it was actually too busted because I had put it in the backyard in the snow to keep it colder at one point. Because there's Thunderbird and then there's the other word night train and one says drink cold the other one says drink very cold and i'd put it in the snow and the label had fallen off so the impact would be gone but i almost brought that bottle up but what was quite striking so i do that moment in the show in the uk yeah um and somewhat larger audiences obviously sort of 500 600 people and i get a, a a ripple of 
appreciation. Ripple from, another fine uh, from, wine. <laughs> from, from certain bits of the um, London audience or the British audience. New York, that audience went, oh my God. <laughs> he drinks Thunderbird? It's, 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 a, it's a particular moment. And, I mean, I'll say that what I especially appreciated about the dishes, I will not reveal the dishes that you picked other than yeah. Thunderbird here, because you really should go on the journey with him through this book. Is oh, that, you really should. Yes. Yeah, buy it now. Yeah. Buy it. Get the, get the, I assume you read the audio book. Like, I did read the audio okay, book. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is always a weird thing thing to have to do I, I did my own and it's a weird thing yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but uh it, it is um you know it's, it's a fantastic journey but so many of these things people assume people assume a lot of things about restaurant critics they assume it about food journalists in general people always assume I'm a restaurant critic I'm like no actually I'm not one but people assume that everything is pinky up and fancy fancy and all those kind of things a lot of what you picked is not fancy no it's, it's not it's um, homey it well it is and I think the reason is that as you know, say it's about attaching memory, emotion yeah. to foods. And those really showy ingredients, the foie gras, the Chateaubriand, all of mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Well, they're so pleased with themselves. It's all <laughs> a meal with those involved. It's all, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Yeah. And it, there's no space in which to have an emotion attached to them, mm-hmm. which is why you're right. It goes to humbler things. Well, like humbler. foie gras, like mum used to make. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 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 like my mother used to make it. It just it isn't the way, is it? That's not what people make at no. home. No. And so yeah, it it, it is humbler stuff. And, I, and somebody, um, there's an element of a dish in there that somebody was questioning you on last night. I think it can reveal, reveal like one aspect of a dish. They were saying, well, processed white bread. And I loved your answer to it because my, one of my favorite things in the world is a tomato sandwich during the summer. Tomato, mayonnaise, mm. crappy white bread. You can't, I loved what you said about sourdough. Artisanal sourdough doesn't make the best sandwich. No, it absolutely doesn't. <laughs> uh, the nearest you come is an open sandwich where the, where yeah. the sourdough is used as a pedestal. Now, don't get me wrong. I love a good sourdough. Oh, dear God, and, yes. <laughs> and, you know, th- there are sourdough wars going on in London. Oh, with here the, in the States very much, too. Uh, yeah, it's culty. Each, each restaurant trying to prove that they've got yeah. the best one and so forth. Um, but, no, it's not great for a sandwich. You need packy white bread. <laughs> yeah, there was somebody, uh, when I still worked at CNN, my colleague and I had a ritual that every summer, um, she's from the South and I'm from South-ish mm. in Kentucky, and we would ritualize that we would make these tomato sandwiches. I would grow the tomatoes uh, usually and, and bring them in, and we would have you know, white paper plates and squishy white bread and, and Duke's mayonnaise that we brought from the South and have these tomatoes. And a colleague was sort of watching us, and she said, white bread? I think we specifically had like Wonder Bread or something like that. And she said, that isn't very foody of you. And I thought, if you don't understand what we're doing here, you get no tomato sandwich. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you're not going to have this. Well, that's the thing, the perception that you are in some way, you know, just about the little pinky rays. Yeah. Nah, it's like, all of it. I think of the best meals of my life, and a few of them are at some some of those fine temples of, of dining, mm. that, you know, I went to Alinea and had a, a deeply emotional meal, and some of that may have been tied up, actually probably very much with the fact that my, my cousin had died at 40 earlier that day, and I was in a very You emotional... were celebrating life. Yeah, it very much was. Um, I've had a couple of meals at Stone Barns, but we were also commemorating experiences too because one of them in particular my husband got ordained to marry friends of ours and it was our 10 year the 10 year anniversary of our first date and it was now their wedding anniversary and it was such a special occasion because we did it just in the grain silo there right and uh because the friend who was getting married had been maitre d at danielle for a thousand years so they did him a favor and let us have this for 
for free as opposed to the million dollars or whatever it was that we usually uh, and we walked to the kitchen after it was done and they stopped service and they banged on pots and pans so I have this deeply emotional memory of that and that's a high-end thing but otherwise I'm thinking of barbecue places that I've been to and uh, uh, like soul food restaurants with really deeply cooked okra and and things like that these really humble meals are things that friends have cooked mm-hmm. for me and when I you know in US, the, but yeah. the, the interesting thing is that one thing doesn't exclude the not other not a bit and liking one thing does not yeah. exclude you from liking the other yeah it, it just means that the higher the price rises I think the more you have to attend to the quality of the experience in all yeah. in all its forms yeah and there's the, the anxiety that that goes with that too am i worthy of this mm. you know thing that has that, that has happened and i realize i sometimes get a little resentful at some of these restaurants because i look around at the obviously very wealthy people and think like it's just thursday to them yeah and i remember going now to, you see i have yeah. i have this issue yeah uh, you mentioned stone barns which is clearly close to your heart yeah and I'm going to be controversial here. Do it. <laughs> okay. So Dan Barber is very, very intense yes. about his mission and he the sure sustainability is, yes. of his restaurant. Mm-hmm. But I have this thing that I think you really have to take the sustainability, the footprint of a restaurant in the round. Yeah. Now, in my book, Greedy Man and the Hungry World, I've looked at this. And, mm-hmm. and the whole of a carbon footprint is defined by the whole life cycle analysis. And with a restaurant, that includes the customers that you attract. Mm -hmm. Now, I think if you took a satellite shot of the car park at Stone Barn, you would see Mm -hmm. lines of Lincoln Town cars that Mm -hmm. are coming from Manhattan. Yes. uh, So that the carbon footprint of this sustainable restaurant Mm -hmm. would be vast because I don't know what the tasting menu there is these days. It's not cheap. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, when you're selling these meals for a few hundred bucks a head to people who've come in with gas-guzzling cars Mm -hmm. from all the way from the Upper East Side... Mm -hmm. You've got a problem. Yes. And I, one of the things I've become deeply suspicious of is the way that certain chefs have expanded this mission mm-hmm. to look after the planet when really they're making dinner for rich people. It's, it's interesting. I was thinking about this a lot when I was having uh, dinner there uh, recently. And, uh, and for me, it's a every few years uh, treat to get to go in and do this. It's not just Thursday. It's something that you plan for for months because also you have to. I have to say, this doesn't mean the restaurant isn't terrific. Yeah. But the, the, I was I was weighing this a lot in my head uh, while, while I was doing this because it's an intensely privileged thing to be able to do. It's astoundingly mm. expensive. And I was thinking, okay, what is the, the sort of moral thing here? And he said something to me in the kitchen that I really appreciated. Um, we were tasting through a few of the things where he's trying out the seeds for it because he has row seven seeds that he is trying to breed for flavor and breed for things that have been bred out of food so it was more easily transportable and things. And he's trying to bring that back. And he said the end goal of that is he wants these seeds to be at Walmart. And I thought, well, that's, that's admirable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be while before you get there too it's it's an interesting thing we're actually working on a piece about these restaurants that have some a mission to them and stuff but who you know who is the mission for who does it benefit kind of thing and what i like about that restaurant it is is because it is confounding in so many ways because yes they have this mission to save the planet and stuff but is is that done by by that but you know who are the are there kids from underserved neighborhoods who are getting to go up there and be in nature if so what does that one day particular day do for them what does how the people who work there treat, it, it's yeah. a, it's a little bit like i would say in, in the way it needs to be looked yeah. at um 
certain restaurants that have been accused of being abusive. Yeah. And there were a couple of critics who said, I am not interested in what goes on behind the Mm. kitchen door. Well, by the same token, I think we should be interested in what goes on behind the kitchen door. And we should also be interested in who the customers are. Yes. And who are they appealing to and who are they serving? And is that a democratic act or is it... Uh, a necessarily exclusive act, in the way you were describing per se, for example, yeah. which had taken exclusivity to a point of still sneering at you, even if you'd managed to book the table. Yeah. Well, the thing that I always appreciate about the friend who I just mentioned, who my you know husband married, he was a he was the maitre d at Danielle for a long time, and he knew he was who he was serving. So in his service. I've always appreciated this about him tremendously. His name's John Winterman, and he uh, he's he's just been in service for a very long time. He made a point of finding the customers who he knew this was the only time they were ever going to be there, that they had saved up all of their money, and they were going to you know, have a blowout uh, kind of dinner, and, and they were maybe nervous about how they were dressed. And he made a point of making them the VIP for the night, sitting them next to Mick Jagger, sitting them next to whoever. So, like, you are not the table that is shunted off to the corner. We're going to put you front and center next to celebrities. We are going to give you perhaps well, even that, better treatment. And, and he can do that because he remembers he is from Indiana. And he grew up going to taverns. He grew up going to all of these these things. And this is why I thoroughly appreciate front of house mm. so very much. Because front of house, people see them as the people who are the gatekeepers and sneering. And there definitely is a lot of that. But a lot of them couldn't afford to eat at the restaurants sure. that they work in. Most back of house people sure could not. And I think that it is, I, I like the subversive act of, yeah, yeah. of that no, like really tremendously. So um, so I'd, I'd gotten the sign that we were winding down on this. But I, I was, I want to say that I really appreciated last night your ability to re- bring together um, U.S. and U.K. audiences in our, um, hatred, maybe hatred isn't the right word or whatever, of Piers Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that's, I... so, there is, so to explain, there is a moment. Can I describe what this is? Yes, please There's do. A, there is a moment right at the top of the show where, uh, um, and actually this is one of those points, when I say that I use PowerPoint, people go, you do a PowerPoint presentation? No, I use it in a video wall sort of way. Yeah. And so I go on and I say, one of the issues of doing a show about Last Suppers is you could be accused of gallows humour, making jokes about people who are actually alive as if you wish they were dead. <laughs> and as I'm saying this, I'm flashing up images of people that I know audiences Various politicians. W- would be very happy. <laughs> so uh, I had to be changed for, the, for New York because yeah. the ones in the UK were a columnist called Katie Hopkins, who I'm sure... Oh, she's terrible. Oh, yeah, she is terrible. But I, I did change her to uh, Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> and then in the UK, it's a guy called Toby Young. And oh, ch- yes. yes. You took over from on Top Chef, I believe. Uh, yes, I did. Well, no, he did one series or something on Top Chef, and I did Top Chef Masters. Okay. And then, so that was changed to Mitch McConnell. <laughs> but I left the image of <laughs> Piers Morgan with Donald Trump, and that played on both sides of the Atlantic. I really appreciated that. As a again former CNN person, I I, I actually worked somewhere where I, on a mezzanine where I'd sort of look down and see him floating around, and uh, we had, you know, and part of my job there was to talk to various of the anchors about food, and I wasn't the one who actually did this interview, and he was just blustering forth about sort of all of all of these things, and uh, it was before he's gotten quite as bad as as he is, but I. I, the curious thing is, yeah. I'm honest, I, um, he, he's had an interesting career at various times. When he was editor of the Daily Mirror, which is, it's a tabloid, but mm-hmm. it's it's a left-to-centre tabloid in the UK. And he did some very, very good campaigning stuff. Mm-hmm. Likewise, I was quite impressed when he was on CNN in, in the US he, with yeah. his willingness to take on the gun lobby. 
That was Which, that was the thing that I truly appreciated, and, and he did it. Yeah, even knowing I think that eventually it would get him sacked. Oh, various things got him sacked, but that would have contributed towards it. This antithesis towards him that built up, and yet, despite the good things, he does <laughs> still manage. Oh, I mean, you know, his his behaviour over. Um, Meghan Markle, for example, oh, was disgusting. Uh, has continued to be repulsive. Anyway, mm. I'm blocked by him on Twitter, so that's oh, a bad joke. That is a- <laughs> I'm blocked by him and by Toby Young. Oh, um, congratulations. And Katie Hopkins has been thrown off Twitter. So, you know, the world, oh, there are good realize. things. There oh, are good things going on in the world. really, truly spectacular. Isn't it? Yeah. I also want to say that I appreciate uh, the, the rigor that you, you put into everything you do and your appreciation of various American foods. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that really, uh, that you, the fact that you went to the trouble of like, uh, or maybe it's the pleasure of like going out with oyster f- uh, farmers and. and all well, that. I thought uh, it was interesting that when I thought back on because oysters are there's a whole chapter on oysters in the yeah. book. It's, it's one of the early chapters. And I love o- Irish oysters. Best, yeah. By the way. <laughs> well, I I just realised that actually the US approach to oysters is is quite thrilling. Yeah. And I was on, so I was in San Francisco and Seattle, mm-hmm. and then knew I had to go to New Orleans mm-hmm. and down onto the bay, across the bay yeah. to the Grand Isle, um, which is neither grand nor an isle, <laughs> as you said. Yeah, not very grand and not really an isle. Um, but it, you know, I do, I do believe as a journalist, mm-hmm. you need to report. I yes. Um, you can write off the top of your head, but it will only get you so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and also maybe it's paranoia. Maybe I, you know, I don't think everything I have to say is is very interesting. <laughs> so the solution to that is have a full notebook. It's still yeah. sitting here. The full notebook. Uh, never got it back in my pocket. Um, have a full notebook and stuff. Reporting mm-hmm. will always be your friend. I've just written a piece for the Times, actually, the New York Times. I'm excited um, about that. Uh, uh, which is about um, looking at the literature around death row. Yes. Which is rather unique. You can't be rather unique. It seems to be that only the U.S. has an interest in the last meal. Well, we there probably are, kill more people than uh, other places. Well, you don't, actually. Uh, Do there are many that are much more prolific. Mm-hmm. There are 50 countries, over mm-hmm. 50 countries around the world that have an active death penalty, mm-hmm. but only the U.S. obsesses about the last meal. Um, and what well, do you chalk that up to? Uh, a number of things. One, I think, is probably that most of the other countries that have uh, the death penalty are repressive countries mm. and therefore do not have a free media enabled to actually report that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a highly developed true crime culture in the media here, and they see it as an extension of that. Yes. Um, and that uh, and that's part of it. But I, I think it's also, it was put to me by one particular researcher as being a vestigial stump of the times when executions were a public event. Oh, people would bring picnics. People yeah, would which bring, actually isn't yeah. unique to the US, mm-hmm. but it had stopped happening in the UK and in France, for example, I think before the US. It, yeah, it ended in the 1930s here. And so what we're left with is uh, you can't you can't watch the act. It's all taken indoors and behind, mm-hmm. behind walls. But it is um, that we're left with being able to look at what they had for their last meal. Um, And it's an interesting subject, but at one point I was talking to one of the editors who said, oh my, reporting by a restaurant critic. And I'd say, I have been a reporter for a long time. Oh my God, yeah, it's the sort of constant, justify your existence, what are you doing? Like, we are fundamentally the best food journalists I know are journalists. Mm. And so many of us write about 
other things as as well yeah, yeah. you know and and you know and you write fiction as well i'm actually very curious about this a novel that you wrote uh, some years back which is a satirical novel but it starts off with a chef killing himself over <laughs> so the, the book the book is called the apologist um and it's about a man who decides to apologize for everything he's ever done wrong and he becomes so good at it he's appointed chief apologist to the united nations to travel the world apologizing yes. for slavery and colonialism it's it's broad satire published mm-hmm. in 2004 mm-hmm. um but yes it does begin with an apparent yeah. su- uh, suicide of a chef who appears to take umbrage at a review now Mm-hmm. It has to be said that within a few pages, his widow says yeah. <laughs> he committed suicide because he was suicidal, yeah. not because of your yeah. review. Get yeah. over yourself. Yeah. Um, because uh, do you remember the Bernard Roiseau? Uh, that actually death? happened. Yeah. And it happened. It's fundamental to it. happened after I'd written the book. Yeah. But just as it was about to be published. And what I found very intriguing was an awful lot of people, if you look at the literature, will say, mm-hmm. Bernard Loiseau, um, three Michelin star chef at the Côte d'Or, mm-hmm. um, killed himself because he'd heard that Michelin yeah. was going to take away a star. Yeah, that's But not... <laughs> it's not the case. No. Um, his widow was very, very clear and said mm-hmm. he was depressed. Yeah. People kill themselves because they're suicidal, very rarely because yeah. of an outside yeah. stigma. Yeah, and I just do want to clear that up because... Uh, it, it gets. I, I try to go on and talk about this you know, when I when I can. Um, that that is it is not cause effect uh, kind of things with this because I don't want anybody to be sort of frightened off of writing the the reviews and things and be be blamed for it but, when there are so many systemic things yeah, yeah, going no, no, on. Absolutely. Although you've yeah. got to be careful. Yeah. So you know people. Yeah. Uh, the reviews of mine, yeah. which get traction here in the U.S., for example, yeah. are the stinkers. Yeah, but they are the smallest part of what I do. They're yeah, fewer absolutely. than a fifth of any of my reviews. I do not go looking for them. Yeah. Um. But you know, uh, Eater, for example, is very unlikely to start quoting from my glowing review <laughs> of a lovely restaurant in New York. Mm-hmm. But if I cut on ru- cut up rough on a Michelin three star in Paris, mm-hmm. then they're going to look at it. Yeah. Um. And I I rest- if I go to a small mom and pop restaurant independent and it's not working and it's bad yeah. and. <sighs> Almost always, mm-hmm. I will pay the bill myself and I won't write about it because it That's... does not need me and a national newspaper down its back. But if it's a very expensive, hyper-capitalised mm-hmm. place that really loves itself, which is overcharging. We you know when Smith & Walensky opened in London, <sighs> their stake prices were a significant percentage up above everywhere else in London. I became very good at calculating per 100 gram prices on steak. Um, and I, I still do it. Yeah. Um, you and Ryan Sutton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, it's worth doing. You, yeah, you, you need to know what you're paying for. And it wasn't very good and the service mm. was terrible. Um, and I think Smith and Walensky can probably take a bad review. <laughs> I think they are. They can cope. Aren't they the, I, I could easily have this wrong, but one of the highest grossing chain in the US or so, something possibly. like something close to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that they can. I. Uh, but just for balance, can yeah. I say that I stopped off at Quality Eats. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dan, is that on 27th, 28th? Anyway, yeah. here in the city. And I had a very, very nice lunch. See? And it is partly owned, or it is owned, part of the Smith and Walensky Group. Oh, it is. So nice. I would just like to say that it, it is not a it, it, it pejorative directed at them. Mm. I ate very well there. So, you know, you've in this book confronted mortality. You have you've had these pleasurable moments and and things. I get the sense that it made you really sort of solidified in 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 your pleasure and looking forward to doing it more. Oh yeah. 
you know, at the end, I did throw my last supper. I had loads of friends around. We were in a pub. We played mm. music, and it was all marvelous. And you played music. Too. Oh, I played. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we I hired a piano in for the night, um, and it was a marvelous night. And the only thing a marvelous night can do to any sane person mm-hmm. is make them think that was great. Let's do it again. Yeah. I'm not going anywhere. Or at least I, I hope not. <laughs> I'm 53. I go to the gym a lot to mitigate the effects of my job. Uh, I intend to be here for a while. That makes me really happy because I think it's. I, no, I honestly think you are you are good for the world. I oh, cat, you charming you. But no, I, I think it's very true because you because you lead with journalism. It's going to be very, because, very, very hard for a, for a cynical Englishman to deal with the. American earnestness, you know that I do. Uh, I'm a terrible <laughs> cynical bastard. I that's that it's it is my great pleasure to make British people cry, which I okay. do, do on the on the, on the radio. do your best, not fill your boots on that. <laughs> I actually have a, a, a very dear friend who I was I was uh, Facebook messaging with last night, and I'm like, I have Jay Rayner in tomorrow. You know, what, what should I ask him? And the thing is, the 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 funny thing was, um, he it was mostly questions about Master Chef Jeff uh, judges who I don't know who they are or whatever. But the thing is, he wanted to know was your mum a good cook she was all right she was all right she was very busy I mean I think you learned a bit about my old mum last night that you may not have known before or maybe I had done some of my research all right so uh, so for anybody who doesn't know Claire Rayner was the British equivalent of Anne Landers or Dear Abby those mm-hmm. problem page mavens so kind of Dr Ruth yeah. that they once met actually oh. Um, Dr. Ruth and Claire. Um, So she was very busy. She was a very successful journalist and broadcaster Mm. and novelist. And the thing I I often talk about is how in the 70s she got got hold of a chicken brick. You remember chicken bricks? Um, Sort of clay... Pots you could, in the shape of a chicken and the hollow, mm-hmm. and you put your chicken and your seasoning <laughs> and some vegetables in, and you close it up, and then you put it in the oven. Chicken bricks are kind of interesting things, and you can put the oven down low and cook your chicken that way. And she would sort of put one of these in the oven, maybe for seven hours, and go off and do something more interesting. <laughs> and it took me a long time to realise that roast chicken could have tension to it. <laughs> And not just be this sort of mushy thing that fell apart. Okay. She was busy. She had other she things had, going. And and the book, so much of all oh, this is a love letter to the experiences that she gave you. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. A really, Absolutely. But yeah, my, my friend was so excited. He was, you know, because some of the questions were, you know, he was, he, you know, sort of asking rude questions about various MasterChef judges and his girlfriend was asking too. But he said in a very earnest way, he, he wanted to know. He grew up in Hull. He like. I mean, I, sh- I should be fair. <laughs> I think she was actually a pretty good yeah. cook. She did Kulibiak. And uh, one point she was one of the first vegetarian cooks on British TV Um, they wanted a a series called Kitchen Garden in which someone not associated with gardening did the gardening of the first half Mm -hmm. someone not associated with cooking cooked in the second half and it was my mother who did that in the 70s and that's how I experienced you know the the spaghetti marrow and I'm still getting over it (laughs) and you're going to be potentially cooking a vegan meal Oh, yes. No, I am. I am. Um, that was, uh, we're doing a, a, a non-meat issue of OFM. I mean, it makes it sound like it's a very specific thing. But they wanted to put the phrase Jay Rayner's vegan dinner party mm-hmm. on the cover. And so I'm I'm throwing one with a few interesting people um, who I know. Uh, it's not the first time I've done it, I'll be honest. Oh, yeah. I, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not I, I'm, I'm not up to my armpits in, in, in blood and beasts. Um, I, I rather like that kind of thing, cooking yeah. non-meat. 
dishes, so it'll be fine. Yeah, it was actually this particular friend who I, he was, uh, we've been friends since 1996, and I, uh, he was the first person to take me to St. John. All right. And okay. he's, and he's recently moved actually out to the donut. He bought the music hall of Ramsgate, which oh, is, okay. he, he should book you now. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's been such an interesting thing. And he, he used to take me, um, it, when I would come over to London, take me to places, he took me to Benji's for a proper fry up. He, right, okay. he took me to a place he sort of has, he, but he, he took me to a place that is one of the oldest restaurants in London, and it's very meaty and very grilly, and I'm blanking on the name of it. but Not Rules? It wasn't Rules. It was somewhere else. Wilton's? Maybe. Name. They have very good coiled sausage <laughs> in there, but uh, I forget Savoy what it is. Savoy Grill? Uh, Simpsons? Oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, don't but, worry. But Why it's been such an interesting thing to see him go from tremendously carnivorous. He he got gout? and he very Well, that can change your attitude, can't yeah. it? Yeah, and so now I'm... Um, Going to London at the end of, of the month, actually to Ramsgate, uh, and he is now runs marathons and is mostly vegetarian and has an allotment and he's he's turning fifty, which is why I'm going for this right. party. But it, it, it comes to us all in time. Yeah, but to see that transformation has been really a, an a incredible thing. thing. So I'm very excited about this. This it should be vegan dinner that you're doing. So we will move on unless there's something else that you really want to share about the book. Uh, um. Only well, the music is a big part of it, and holding it up to the camera again yeah, for those on. who can see it. See um, this beautiful there nice I am. face. <laughs> yeah, music is a big part of it. Yeah, um, that you know, you need a playlist. Yeah, with every good dinner, and actually, for me, it became a moment in which I could describe how I ended up as a professional gigging jazz musician, which yeah. has taken me by surprise and is a very important part of my life. But I think there is a beautiful relationship between music and food. Um, and I have said in the past in reviews that if a restaurateur wants to guarantee a good review, have mm. a piano. Oh. Even if it's not being played, I think better of any space with a piano in it. I am thinking of the restaurants where I went. I actually go to Boysdale's when I go to London, and I appreciate... They so, do have live music, yeah. Yeah, I have a haggis, and I listen to live music. And, <laughs> and it's, That's it's, a hell of a London experience. Yeah, and it's just become the thing that I do every time I'm, I'm there, because it's, it's. I think we don't have that here so much, and I really appreciate it, and I appreciate the jazz brunches that you can go out to, and I love... Uh, there's a particular restaurant I go to in New Orleans. Um, the jazz room in our notes yeah. is magical, and I ended up in there by accident... Uh, one of the times when I was there recently and I was by myself my husband was coming later in the week and I went back and brought him because I knew he would love it a little jazz trio mm. goes around to each table and takes requests and, and the musicians are all a thousand years old and, of course they are and it's just such a joy to have that it's seamless and it's really truly beautiful and yes this is my plug for Arno's jazz yeah. <laughs> that jazz room um, so with this there are a few questions that I ask everybody and I am been particularly excited about uh, asking you, you some of these because you you know you you devote yourself to your craft and you <laughs> shared a wonderful picture of your family last night I absolutely love that and you, you clearly love the people around you and and, and you do all of this um, what is the selfish thing that you want for you what's the selfish thing yeah, what is the thing that you want because I would say like sort of an Oprah moment that you really have to sort of say out into the universe so other people can help get you this this thing oh I mean that's kind of curious time is something I'm quite yeah. selfish getting time but I think in some ways the career that I built mm -hmm. I, I meant to say so-called career that I built <laughs> is an act of selfishness I have managed to avoid 
a job which required me to say where I saw myself in five years' time or go to too many meetings. I hate meetings. <laughs> and, and in a way, although I've, you know, committed myself to each element of my working life, that I often think it's extremely selfish of me to avoid all these things and just make it about the things that I like doing. I've really, you know, very privileged to have to do a working thing that I don't enjoy. Um, so, uh, you know, more of the same, please. <laughs> I think that's great. So I always, I ask chefs this, and uh, you may or may not have an answer for this. Um, I ask them if they've ever cried in the walk-in. So you may or may oh, not. Oh, oh, I see. Have the, I ever cried in a walk-in? Or the equivalent thereof. <laughs> uh, I did once weep under my desk. What happened? Oh, it was... Um, uh, I'd got half away into a novel mm. um, and an editor had told me it was a complete disaster and I needed to rewrite it from top to bottom. Oh, It was quite a few years ago. Yeah. But yeah, that was my crying in the walk-in moment. Yeah. it's. And then I stole myself and I rewrote the whole thing and it was published and it was fine. Which one was it's it? It's called The Oyster House Siege. Oh, yes. Yes. So I, I was going through and I was... And, um, I think I will read that next because I've read all your nonfiction. <laughs> right. So that's it's a novel about a siege in a restaurant kitchen on the mm -hmm. night of the 1983 British general election. Okay. On so. next on there while while you're buying Jay Rayner's yeah. Last Supper <laughs> by by that is as well. Um, what is the cookbooks? Our wonderful uh, editor Meg Soul writes about cookbooks. What is your go-to staple older cookbook and what is a more recent one that you're excited about? Um, the go-to uh, is New British Classics mm -hmm. by, I hate to have to say, the late Gary Rhodes. Uh, Gary died very recently over the mm. past few months. There was some accident in, uh, I think he was in Dubai and he was suddenly dead. Um, uh, he was one of the original TV chefs. Mm. And one of the problems with TV chefdom is it can detract from your own skills as a chef. Yeah, but he wrote this spectacular book called New British Classics, which is my absolute go-to for certain techniques. I, I look to most cookbooks for technique and method mm -hmm. rather than necessary recipes. And on the basics of roasting meat and, you know, Yorkshire puddings and the perfect gravies and stuffings and mm. all of these British, you know, syrup puddings, New British Classics is an absolute killer. Everyone should have a copy. Is there a newer book? Um, my concern with modern cookbooks is they have become so beautiful as artifacts mm -hmm. with their color plates presenting you with food that is unobtainable mm -hmm. because you know that most of the time even the chefs themselves couldn't produce that food. <laughs> they are invitations to fail. I have I have a museum of those cookbooks that I never cook out of. Yeah, and I have an awful lot of them. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, I feel like I'm duty-bound to give you an answer for a modern one. And there's some interesting ones that have come along. Mm -hmm. My friend Tim Anderson has just done... Um, Tim Anderson was a MasterChef winner mm -hmm. in the UK. Uh, he's from Wisconsin but has always been fascinated by Japanese food. He runs a Japanese soul food restaurant in London called Nanban. Um, and he is about to release uh, a vegan Japanese book. Mm. Um, and he's one of the few people I would trust to lead me down that path. I, I love Romy Gill's A Vegan Indian Book. Right. Like, that's such a spectacular book. 
So I've, I have already seen this book, and it's coming out very soon, um, and I'm sure it will be available somewhere here in the US, but that's the one. We've been getting the trickle over. We just got mm. the St. John book, <laughs> the, the new version of it. Right, okay. It, which is wonderful, which is hilarious, too, because it looks like a Bible, because the pages are gilded yeah. around the edge, but it's, I, it, it is a glorious thing. What is the toughest job in a restaurant? Do you mean physically? or You what get is, to take this however you want to. What is the toughest job in a restaurant? All right. Of all, I, I've done various jobs in restaurants mm-hmm. as part of my journalistic career, and the one that floored me and that I couldn't keep up with was the job of the kitchen porter. Oh God, yes. Uh, I would. I did a piece about being a kitchen porter, and I in the UK for various reasons that are a bit complicated to explain. It tends to be dominated in London by East Africans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kenyans, Tanzanians, and so forth. And um, (laughs) I had done about five or six hours, and my hands were starting to cramp, and I had a jazz gig the next day. Oh, God. And my fingers were clawing. And I looked at this guy and thought, the only reason why you would continue is to prove that you are harder and more capable of dealing with this than he is. And you're clearly not. (laughs) At which point, I simply lifted my hands and said, I'm done. Yeah, I stopped. So I think being a kitchen porter. And the interesting thing about the kitchen porter's job is without them, no restaurant could function. If you didn't have clean plates, if you didn't have clean, you know, gastrics, Mm -hmm. if you didn't have clean pots and pans, nobody else could do anything. So it's a very tough job. It's probably one of the least rewarded, but it's also one of the most important. There's an Irish publication called The Caterer, and, and they, uh, in the last couple of years, had Porter of the Year. Right. I uh, yeah, yeah. loved. Yeah. I thought that was a brilliant move to really recognize yeah. these, these people who are important. Um, what is your go-to comfort food? Cheese on toast. Any particular methodology for uh, <laughs> Okay. So, <laughs> it's actually one of the good uses for sourdough. Yes. Uh, you need to lightly toast it in a toaster first, mm-hmm. then pump up the grill. Uh, you layer on the cheese, and, and then I think bacon. Uh, some people mm. think this is sacrilege, but uh, it's my cheese on toast, not theirs. Uh, then um, <laughs> I'm quite partial to a sprinkling of togarashi spice, mm. and then a good uh, splatter of Tabasco. Put that onto the grill. Perfect. That is a glorious thing. And I always. Now I want cheese on toast. Right? <laughs> I was British people on toast. My, I feel like my greatest accomplishment at my last job, which was a website that was all about breakfast, mm. I had Vince Clark come in and make beans on toast. That, you know, uh, <laughs> the great man behind you is Zoo and Erasure. Uh, he is my neighbor. Is he? Does he, he, live, does he live here in the he States? He lives in, in Park Slope. And I was on his wife. And she, his wife has an identical twin. Right. And they have a fantastic podcast called Stories of Strange Women. Right. And I got to know them while I was writing my book about anxiety because they had the Morbid Anatomy Museum. And I wrote a bunch of it sitting longhand in the cafe there. Fantastic. And we got to know each other. And he produces the podcast for them. And uh, his wife had posted a picture of him on uh, Facebook deboning a Dover soul. And I said, do you think he'd, he'd do a video? And she said, sure. So he came in. And so is he a food obsessive? He is. He cooks Star. all the meals for the family. How fascinating. Oh, he's he's so wonderful. And I, I would say on a similar note, I learned last night from a friend of mine that the great Thomas Dolby oh, lives God. here um, and yes. is a professor of music somewhere over in Baltimore, I think. Yes, um, he is. He's one of my great musical heroes. Oh, my husband's too. Like he has a particular th- – there's a question that I will ask you in a bit and my yeah. husband's answer is Thomas Dolby <laughs> to, to this question. Uh, what is the last meal that you had that made you emotional? Oh, 
last meal that I had that made me emotional. Actually, I think it would have been a review that I did as an act of solidarity with the British Chinese community. Yes. Which has suffered very, very badly from uh, misplaced racism around the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I decided to review a place called Four Seasons on London's Gerrard Street. At number 12 Gerrard Street, there are a number of Four Seasons. And they do the best roast Cantonese meats. And I usually go to this restaurant by myself. Mm -hmm. I go there and I have the roast duck and some of the morning glory with minced pork. And I have a copy of The New Yorker and I sit with my back to the door so nobody can see my shame. And it's great. (laughs) But I took my wife and I took my son and another friend and it was the joy of introducing very close people to something that was very close to my heart. I love that. And I I cannot say enough, go out and eat at your... Yeah, go support your Chinese restaurant. We have a piece coming up in the next day or two by Grace Young about why she's seen places close over the last few weeks. Yeah, and can I say, I'm stone cold certain that nobody is shunning Italian restaurants despite the fact that Mm -hmm. Northern Italy has... Uh, you know, suddenly had a, a an upsurge in cases as well. Yeah, I was just out in Brooklyn's Chinatown in Sunset Park to this massive um, Asian market that is out there, and they have an, tremendous food stalls and things. And mm-hmm. I was doing my paranoia stock up of grains and tinned fish and all that kind of stuff. Business as usual there. It was it was oh, tremendous. Good, I only good, saw good. a couple people wearing masks, and it was it was it was really heartening uh, yeah. to see. And they actually the other thing that heartened me was I'm when I go, I'm usually the only Caucasian person who I see, and there were several other people and I thought like okay this is this is okay yeah I, I felt really happy that they were there, like sort of showing Great. solidarity so I was putting on Instagram and stuff but it's it's absolutely vital to support these businesses because we've already seen some shutter here in uh, yeah. in Manhattan what is the last meal that somebody cooked for you at their home uh, last meal that somebody cooked for me at their home. It obviously doesn't include my wife cooking for me nope. at our home. Somebody, people are hesitant to cook for critics no, and they chefs. Are. Now, I mean, the reality is that I have a couple of friends who don't so much say, come for dinner, come to a dinner party mm-hmm. as we're having supper, come on over. Yeah, um, love those And <laughs> a, uh, a close friend, Sarah and Charlie, uh, just had a whole bunch of us over and cooked Indian. Yeah. food uh, from a great cookbook, Dishoom. Oh, which, God, phenomenal. Yeah, it's a great cookbook, and, and they're great restaurants. Um, and I think I think actually we'd given them the Dishoom cookbook for Christmas, and he <laughs> was cooking from it. Um, so, yeah, it was great. Oh, that's wonderful. I This uh, question, I can't wait for your answer. Um, who is the living musician who you would want to cook for, and what would you cook for them? Who is the living musician I'd want to cook for? My husband would be Thomas Dolby. So. <laughs> um. So jazz is my thing, mm-hmm. and I hmm, interesting question. I'm going to actually go for. I I, I go through sort of phases mm-hmm. with various people. There is a jazz pianist here in New York mm-hmm. called Bill Charlap, um, and he has the most beautiful uh, touch, and his interpretations of some of the great classics are gorgeous. And my cooking for him would merely be my way to, uh, and uh, you know, make him like me, so <laughs> That's that all he, any of us want. Yeah, so that he would help me to understand exactly how he achieves what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would probably, I think I referenced it last night. There's a braised shoulder of lamb I do, yes. which is an absolutely perfect dish when you want to talk to someone as well, mm-hmm. because sometimes. Too much cooking gets in the way of the conversation. So if I'd done all the cooking seven hours ago and all I had mm-hmm. to do was wait for it to be finished, that's what I'd do for Bill Charlap. I love that. Dear Bill Charlap, if yeah. you're listening if you're listening to this, please. <laughs> um, and final question, um, if you have five 
uninterrupted minutes for self-care, what do you do? Five uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. So everything, you're not having to look at your cell phone, your family's fine and safe. No, you, no editor is calling you for a deadline. I go to the piano. I, 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 it's my place of safety. Mm-hmm. I have a lovely grand piano in one of my front rooms. Mm-hmm. And although at times that can be a place where I'm working mm-hmm. because I need to get a, a song on its feet and I need to understand mm-hmm. you know, what, what the change is. At other times... It is just very pleasant to sit and play something I know very, very well yeah. and listen to my own heartbeat. I love that. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And thank you so much for, for being here. And, and again, people, this book is a really, truly lovely reflection on food and humanity and in the end, joy. Thank you. And go see him if he's on tour. <laughs> Listen to the podcast. We'll have all of the links. Oh, uh, excellent. Thank you. And people can find you on a various social media. Yes, I'm on uh, Twitter where I'm quite noisy um, as jrainer one <laughs> Was some... the other Jay Rayner taken? Like... Yeah, there was somebody impersonating me, but they hadn't really put their back into it. <laughs> I mean, they hadn't really posted. They just uh, slapped a picture of me and I couldn't be bothered. So I thought, jrainer one fine. Sure. Um, and I'm on Instagram, I also as Rayner one Now, on Instagram, I need to warn you, mm-hmm. um, my pictures are anti-Instagram pictures. As in, <laughs> um, when I set up the account, it was because I was starting to tour. And my management said, you know, we think you need one. I said, well, look, when I review, I take a shot of every dish. They're not pretties. They mm-hmm. are an aid memoir. I never use flash. Uh, I never stand up to do it. I, I do almost nothing to get good quality. The best you can hope for is that it will be in focus. <laughs> um, and that's what I post every Sunday. So that obviously when I review a restaurant, we then send a photographer in afterwards with mm-hmm. a list of the dishes I had and they photograph them. So you get a professional take on them. Mm-hmm. But I think it's now interesting in the current age to have a look at the ones that I was served. And sometimes there is a great discrepancy between those two things. <laughs> Same thing with Pete, though. He took for a while to doing watercolors and drawing what he was doing. It, it's actually really quite lovely. But thank you so much for, for coming in and, and sharing with us. And I and I hope you have more wonderful meals in, in New York while you're here. I have another 36 hours and I'm determined to eat well. Use every one of them. <laughs> thank you so much today to our guest, Jay Rayner. You can find him all over social at jrayner1. Please go buy this book at... Ideally, an independent bookseller would be especially great. But, you know, you're, it's, it's available wherever books are sold. And it is just a great reflection on mortality and joy and really, really fantastic food. You can find his work in The Observer. We'll include links to podcast and uh, just get to know this man if you don't already. Oh, you probably do already. You've seen Top Chef and Master Chef. You know who he is. Um, but please, um, this is this is a particularly special book. Please, please read it. And you know what? This podcast, Communal Table, is part of Food & Wine Pro, where we're for the industry. We are part of Food & Wine, and we are geared toward taking a really close look at the issues that affect the industry front and back of house, what you and what consumers can do to support the people in the industry. You can find that on foodandwine.com. Sign up for the weekly newsletter, and it, it has uh, links to some of our most recent stories, 
particularly relevant, the most recent podcast that we have, but it's also just what we're seeing out in the world. Our editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis, is is constantly traveling, and he has insights from all over the place. Sometimes I pinch it and write it as well, and we um, and our colleague, Oset Babur, pitches in sometimes, and we're, it's just something we're really proud and excited about, and we have a weekly word of wisdom from uh, Kelsey Youngman in the Test Kitchen, who is also a certified meditation instructor, and we get you caught up on the latest food news. Please subscribe to that. And also, I wanted to thank our podcast production staff, Hallie Tarpley, Margot Gotthelf, and Jennifer Martnick, to our ever-rotating and always talented cast of audio and visual people. I want to thank Douglas Wagner for our delightful theme song. If there's somebody who you think we ought to be talking to, if there's a topic you want to see us address, I am really freakishly easy to find on Twitter at Kitten with a Whip, or just Again, I'm easy to find. Hit me up on social. Tell me who I should be talking to. And I'd really be grateful if you like this podcast and want to leave us stars, ratings, reviews. It helps more people find us. It's the whole algorithm thing. And I don't understand it. I feel better for not understanding it. I just know that it works and helps us get to the top of of uh, the rankings there so people can actually find us and listen to us because I really like doing this. I want to be able to keep doing it. Most importantly... Take good care of yourself until the next time.